The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Right on. Grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have your Bible or a Bible app, um, we use the English, tra- uh, English Standard Translation here. Um, but if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible or app to be able to follow along with us, if you just stick a hand up nice and high, we got some guys that will make sure that you get one. Um, so that you can follow along with us. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Um, We pray that it would just uh, be able to just continue to teach you more and more about our good and gracious King Jesus. We are in Ephesians chapter 1. We haven't made it very far, though it's been a couple of weeks since we were here last. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14, the mega sentence that we've been spending a few weeks breaking down. Um, And then we'll dig in. So Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God, we bow before you right now and ask, Lord, that your word would rule and reign over us. That, Lord, as you speak to us, God, and I pray that you would, Lord, may your Holy Spirit just move in this place. Lord, no one in here needs my thoughts. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your word, your hope. And so I pray, Lord, that as we open this passage and as we look at it, that you would be honored by everything that is said, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Hey, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. We call it the book of Ephesians, but it's really the letter to the Ephesians. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in an area where he had planted churches about five years previously. It's in what we would refer to as modern-day Turkey. And Paul is writing them. It's different than a lot of his other letters. It's very different than the letters we've been looking at recently as we've been in 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, because those were all letters to deal with issues. And there doesn't seem to be any overriding issue that Paul's addressing as he writes to the Ephesians other than just to continue to teach them, to continue to grow them, to continue to disciple them, but not that he's dealing with some specific problem. And what we've been looking at is the intro of this letter. It's it's ridiculous. It's amazing and it's horrible English, we would say. 
Um, verses 3 through 14, what we just read in the original Greek language is one sentence with no commas. One long run-on sentence. Now, we've looked at some different things already in the passage. We've looked at the idea of identity and how Ephesians teaches us who we are in Christ and then who we are to be in the world around us as we live out of that identity. So we've looked at that, and, and then we've started looking into the blessings. And the reason that we're looking at the text in this way is because when you take this one sentence this one giant run-on sentence, um, it was intended to be broken down based on the verbs that are there. And the verbs that are in this text are the blessings that Paul's talking about. When he starts out by saying that Christ, in verse 3, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, he then really goes on a rant. This sentence is like a gushing rant where he's just saying, we have been blessed with, and he's just going. It's like if you just saw the greatest movie you've ever seen, you're like, oh, that movie was amazing. It had this and this and this, and you just sort of gushed about that movie or that restaurant or amusement park or whatever it was. That's what Paul's doing. He's just going on and on, just pouring out. It's not intended to be a complete list, like these are the blessings God gives us and none others. That's not the idea. The idea is that Paul is just gushing with worship for what Christ has done. And so he goes through this. So we've been spending some time looking at what are the blessings that are listed here and, and how should they affect us. And so we've looked at this, this one sentence that's 202 words with no punctuation, and we're going through what are these blessings he talks about. And we've seen that we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. The, the other three we will address, including today, are um, we have been given a plan or his plan, we have been assured an inheritance, and we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so those are the, the blessings. Now, the, the purpose of this big, giant, run-on sentence is worship. That in the end, Paul is just gushing out all these amazing things that God does in the hopes that we would, like him, end in just worshiping. Verse 14 ends, to the praise of his glory. So Paul wants us to worship. He wants us to see who God is and what God has done and that the result would be just overflowing worship in this. But but. The point of the sentence, or the, the subject of the sentence, is clearly who? It's, it's God. I mean, it's clearly God. Though we're looking at the blessings, don't forget, the blessings are what God has done. The subject of the sentence is God. So it's God who chooses. It's God who adopts. It's God who forgives. It's God who redeems. It's God who has a plan. It's God who gives the gift. It's God who seals us in the Holy Spirit. The passage is about God, and the result of the passage should end in worship of God as we see what he's done and what, what it is that, that he's done for us. And today we're going to look at the blessing of the plan. We've been given, or God has, and has included us in a plan. Look at verse 9. It says, He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and earth, and in him we've obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's what we're going to look at in this passage. It's going to be just a three-point sermon. We're going to look at three things and then we'll be done. But you know me, it's going to take us forever to get there. So these are the three things that we're going to talk about. The first thing is this, that there is a plan. The second thing, 
everything is part of the plan. And the third thing, Jesus is the plan. That's what we're going to look at today. There's a plan, everything's in the plan, and Jesus is the plan. So, so let's start out with the first one. In verse 9 that we just looked at, it says that according to his purpose, and then in verse 10 it says, as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, that translation works, it's beautiful, it's poetic, but the meaning could be better explained, I think, for us in the sense that what he's saying, when he says the fullness of time, that, that's his way of saying all of history. Fullness of time means all of time or all of history. And so what Paul says here is that there is a plan, God has a plan for all of history, all of history, every single thing that happens in history is part of God's plan, all of it. This means, English students, you can tell your teachers this year, this year, this means that Shakespeare is a liar. He's wrong. A great writer, super artistic and poetic, but he's wrong because one of his most famous plays is Macbeth. And in Macbeth, there's this, this well-known soliloquy that he goes on, this, this rant, if you will, and he says this, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour on the stage, but then is heard no more. And then he goes on to say, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What, this is what he means. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. I mean, I mean, we trumpet things and we do things and we live a certain way and we act out things and we, we do all sorts of things in life and we try and we succeed and we fail. But in the end, none of this stuff really matters because in the end, you're gone, it's gone, time rolls on as it always has been. Nothing matters. Really encouraging, right? There's a gift card probably with that that you might want to buy. Um, he's not alone. There's a famous philosopher named Bertrand Russell, and you, you may not care anything about Bertrand Russell. You might not, you, you shouldn't care about most of the things he teaches, but, but you should understand that many of his philosophies permeate a lot of the belief systems that are prevalent in the world around us today. And, and Bertrand Russell wrote about this, but he was way darker even than Shakespeare was. I've got this quote so you can follow along with me. Check out what Bertrand Russell says. Bertrand Russell says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision in the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. He was having a bad day when he wrote this. And then he says this, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Wow. Man, get this guy some coffee or something, man. Like, dude needs a nap and a cartoon. Like, I mean, seriously, this is what he's saying. <clears throat> this is what Bertrand Russell says. 
everything that happens in life, everything in the universe that happens is just an accident. Atoms that ended up together and it, it produced what we are, it's just an accident. But in the end, as time goes on, we're going to be gone Everything we do is going to be gone. None of it matters. There's no real outcome to any of this. It's all going to play out and we're going to dissolve and disappear just like everything else. And since we know this as beings that can reason, the only safe way to live life is to remind yourself of this every day. Get up every day and say, my life is built on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Every day. But because why in the world would you get your hopes up when we know this to be the truth? And so he says, this is the reality. We are built on a foundation of unyielding despair. And to get our hopes up and think that we're anything beyond that is just a waste of time and an unsafe way to live. Just going to let you down. This is what he teaches. Now, there's people today that believe that. It doesn't matter. But, but they might even say it differently. It doesn't matter. Nothing we do matters. It doesn't matter at all. But we still should, you know, be good people like we shouldn't run wild with that and go, then I can just do whatever I want. doesn't matter what my neighbor thinks. If I like his car better than mine, I'm going to punch him in the nose and take it. And who cares? It doesn't matter. They would say, no, we still need to be good people. We still need to try to alleviate suffering. We still need to try to do good things for other people because those are good things for humans to do. But Bertrand Russell himself, the creator of the philosophy that they live out, would say, no, think. Why? It, it, that makes no sense. To believe that nothing in life matters, but then to believe, but we should be good people because it's right? Why is it right? I mean, the suffering that we alleviate is only temporary at best. Everything's going to fade. Everything's going to go to nothing. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's what people would say, or what Russell would say to those who say that. The point is, everything's going nowhere, but the Bible comes to this kind of thinking and philosophy and says, no, there's a plan. We're going somewhere. History has a goal. And everything in history, there is a plan that's coming to fruition. Now, that's the easy one. The Bible just states it pretty clearly. No, no, there's a plan, point one. Now, point two gets a little more complex. We can start thinking about this. Point two is everything that happens in history is part of that plan. Everything. Every single thing is part of God's plan. This is what he says in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, how many things? Say it loudly. How many things? All things to the purpose or the counsel of his will. In other words, everything works out God's plan. Everything. Everything is part of this plan. Now, there, there's two words in this passage for plan, and one of them is the Greek word bouleon or boule, and it literally means blueprint. That's what it means, that everything in earth fits in God's blueprint for this plan, this thing that he's doing in life. Good, bad, indifferent, everything is part of this specific plan. And this raises the age-old debate that, that, that's not just in theological circles, it's even in Hollywood. Can we rewrite history? Or in our attempt to do something that would change what seems to be the inevitable outcome of history, are we only serving to fulfill what history intended in the beginning? If you've ever watched that great theological uh, trilogy, Back to the Future, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Can we rewrite history? Do our efforts matter? 
Or are we predestined to just things are going to play out the way that they're going to play out? And really, you can try to change it. But even as you're trying to change it, that's really what you were supposed to do in the first place. You're just destined. You have no free will. This is the debate. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Signs. Have you ever seen the movie Signs, M. Night Shyamalan movie? No one wants to raise their hand because you're in church and you're not supposed to admit you like movies. We're not that kind of church. It's okay. Have you ever seen, you like Signs? We've seen the movie. This was also, I should let you off. This is before we knew Mel Gibson was crazy. Okay, so it's okay to like signs. This was before we knew he was off his rocker, and it's a great movie. It's a movie about faith and all this stuff, and there's a, a famous line in it where Mel Gibson's character is talking. He basically says, he says, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's some people that believe we are all on our own. We make our own choices. Things play out based on how we choose. We are all our own. But then there's another type of person that believes that someone out there is actually looking out for all of this stuff and that there are no coincidences. And that plays out big time in the movie. I don't want to give it away, for, but great flick. You should watch it. It's like a Bible study right there in the movie. But put another way is this. Is there a determined plan in life that we cannot escape, or do our choices matter? This is a debate that's been going on forever. Is there a determined plan, or do we have free will? And the Bible says, yep. Uh-huh. There's a determined plan? Yes. Do we have free will? Yep. They're both right? Uh-huh. And it seems like a contradiction, does it not? And these two competing philosophies have been around for a long time. The first is referred to as um, determinism or fatalism. The idea that things are determined, they're going to play out, doesn't matter what you choose, your steps have been determined already and you're just playing out a part, you have no free will at all. In religious circles, this gets referred to under things like God's providence, uh, God's sovereignty, God's plan, predetermination, predestination, those sorts of things. But, but it doesn't just exist in religious circles. Even in science, um, there are those who would believe and teach that your free will is a complete myth. They would say, no, you, you are predestined at least to certain things by your culture, your genetics, your DNA, your upbringing. There are all sorts of things in play that have nothing to do with what you may or may not choose. You have no control over them that are going to at least to some part determine who you are. And so the idea that you have um, total free will, they would say, is a complete myth. And this belief has been around for centuries in like, I think it's 465 BC, somewhere in the 400s, there was a, a famous play that some of you may have heard of and not even remember what the actual context of it is um, about Oedipus Rex. You heard that before, Oedipus Rex. He's a guy who it was told he is predestined, you are predestined to kill your father and marry your mother. It's sketchy, right? Jerry Springer kind of stuff, but that's what this is. Is he still around? Is there still Jerry Springer? I don't know. Anyway, no one's going to admit that anyway, that they know that. No, I don't know him. But anyway, um, Oedipus Rex. So he was told it is predestined that you are going to kill your father, you're going to marry your mother. And so he spends his entire life making decisions to intentionally separate himself from any possibility of ever being in a situation where those things could play out. But in the end, the very choices he makes to do that puts him in a situation where he unknowingly kills his father and marries his mother. Now, now, that's an ancient one that may not be as familiar, but we have that in our own culture too. Sleeping Beauty. You will prick your finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel like you do 
It's like this common thing, I guess, back in the day. You're going to prick your finger on a spinning wheel. And so what does the king do? Let's get rid of all the spinning wheels. We're going to destroy them. They're illegal in the kingdom. And he makes all these, by the way, that is Sleeping Beauty. Am I right on this one? Okay, I just want to make sure. Um, I have daughters, I should know. But um, So they make all these decisions to separate her from all of these possibilities. But the decisions that they make end up setting things into motion. And sure enough, the day comes and pricks her finger and Sleeping Beauty is born. This is what a lot of people believe, the idea that you are destined and it doesn't matter what you choose. Your choices will only serve to play out that which you are destined to do. And then obviously the the opposite of this is the idea of free will or the back to the future philosophy, right? Back to the future, just incredible theological series. ends, they so rip us off at the end of that series. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they pull the rug out from under us and they cheat and ruin all three movies at the end of this movie. Because at the end of the third movie, remember they've been carrying around these stupid photos for three straight movies and people are disappearing and they're there. Oh no, we made a decision. He's not going to exist anymore. Remember all this, the pictures? Somebody help me. (laughs) Okay. But then what happens? At the end of the third movie, the girl comes up to Doc, and she's got the blank photo. Remember that? And she goes, what does this mean? And Doc says, it means your future hasn't been written yet. You can make it whatever you want to be. Then what was the point of the photos for three straight movies, and then you just ditch everything that you've been doing? Sorry. But anyway, this is... But, but this is a very American way of thinking. And, and what, what it is is you can write your future. You can do whatever you want. You can become whatever you want. Your future is a blank slate and you can work hard and you can make decisions and you can do things on your own to become whatever you want to be. And it's silly when you think about it. But because we, we want to ignore some realities where there are areas of our upbringing that absolutely affect who we are and who we're going to be. There are things in our culture that absolutely affect who we are and what we're going to be. There are things at play that do this, whether they ultimately define us or not. There are influences that affect who we are that are outside of our immediate control. And this is just reality. And so we tell our kids, this is America. You can be whatever you want. Awesome. I want to be the new starting center for the Portland Trailblazers. They need one now. And so I'll be the new starting center for the Portland Trailblazers. That's great, Jeff. This is America. You can be whatever you want. That's just not true, right? I mean, there's just plain genetics at play that say, I am not going to be a seven-foot center in the NBA, and I can work as hard as I want on my hook shot. It's never going to happen. So the thought that I can just be whatever I want to be is not true, no matter what we say. But think of it this way. Even if it was, should we want that? I mean, think how many things previously in your life, the older you are, the more this is going to resonate with you. It's just the truth. How many things at different points in your life you knew, I want that. And for whatever reason, maybe something got in the way, it didn't happen. Maybe it's a relationship. I've got to have him. I've got to have her. And now you look back and you're like, whew, that was close. (laughs) Right? Garth Brooks made a song. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, which is still a bad name for a song because the answer to the prayers was no, and he's saying thankful that God said no to these things, right? I mean, think about, like, back when you were young, the things that you wanted out of life that you were certain you needed, what percentage of those things, had they been given to you, would have ultimately been good for you? Like, what, 20%? 
35 if we're a smart kid? And, and so if someone came to you and said, tomorrow you will have everything you could possibly desire, the smartest thing we could do is just stay in bed all day. It's just the reality. And if you don't understand that and you disagree with me about that, then you don't understand who you are. You don't understand the human condition. You haven't lived long enough to see how certain things in history play out. We are not ultimately in a situation where we have this ultimate free will, but there's people that believe this. We have total free will. We can be whatever we want, and the reality of it is is some of that is just straight-up foolishness if we were to go that far. So you have these two competing worldviews. Do we ultimately have free will? Is there a plan that is unescapable? And the Bible comes to both of them and says, yes. Yes. Is there a plan we can't escape? Yes. Well, th- that seems to sap us of any hope. Like, what's the point then? If, if, we, if there's a plan that's beyond our control, there's nothing we can do about it, why have any hope? But then on the other end, do you have free will? Are we the product of our choices ultimately? Yes. Well, that should paralyze us with fear, frankly, if we understand who we are. The Bible comes along and says, both are right and both are wrong. Now, you can see the contradiction in this throughout the scriptures. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, Calvinism and Arminianism, and, and, and some of you might have thought I was just full-on pulling a coward move by saying that we're biblicists, we're not either one of those, we just want to teach the Bible, and we're going to teach whatever it says, whichever one. You, some of you might have been going, you're just coward. You're just trying to please everybody and you don't want to take a stand. But no, listen, the scriptures are full of these sorts of situations all the time. I'll give you an example. Give you an example. In Ephesians, for example, Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul's going to say over and over and over, you are predestined to be like Christ. God has a plan to make you more and more like Christ. You have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be like Christ and God's going to do this work in you. But then... In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, he says, now work as hard as you can and strive with all your might to be like Christ. Well, which is it? If it's a plan and God's going to do it, then we don't have to do anything. We just sit back and let God do his thing. But if it's something we need to strive to do, then isn't that our own work? And Paul would say, both. Do both. And the Bible's full of things like that. In, In the prophetic writings, in the prophetic writings, God will say to the people of Israel, "Um, hey, tell tell the Israelites this. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm upset with your behavior, so I'm going to use the Babylonians to come and punish you for your wrong. And then he'll say, and then I'm going to punish the Babylonians for being used by me to punish you. Like, that's weird, right? I'm going to punish you with the Babylonians, and then I'm going to punish the Babylonians for being used? Seems to be. In Acts chapter 2. Peter gives this first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he says to the people, he says, Jesus Christ was predestined before the foundations of the earth. God ordained that Jesus would die on the cross. And we would agree with that, amen? And then he turns right around and says, and you should repent for doing that to him. What? If if God put that into place, if that was God's plan, then why would I be repenting from this if that sounds like that's something that God do? And the Bible says, yep, yep. Fatalism says our choices don't matter. And free will says our choices totally matter. They're the only things that matter. But the scriptures show both. The Bible teaches clearly that man is absolutely responsible for his own decision. 
Free will. The choices you make have consequences. They matter. God holds you responsible for those things. But then the Bible turns right around and says that God is ultimately in control of everything and that he orchestrates everything to bring about the plan that he's already laid out. And it just seems like a contradiction. Maybe the most classic example of this actually is in Acts 27, which is interesting because it get, that passage itself gets used to argue the whole Calvinism, Arminian thing, especially regarding eternal security. And yet that passage showcases this same sort of contradiction or seemingly contradiction in the scriptures because in it, Paul has been taken prisoner and they're taking Paul to Rome to stand ultimately before Caesar. And he's going on trial. But on the boat, on their way, they get into this horrific storm. And everyone is convinced this ship is going to come apart and we are going to die. But this angel comes to Paul. And the angel says to Paul, hey, Paul, don't fear. God has already ordained that you are going to make it to Rome and you are going to testify before Caesar. So do not fear. You're going to make it you and everyone traveling with you. So Paul goes to everyone on the boat and says, guys, listen, an angel appeared to me and has assured me every one of us are going to survive this storm. Now that's no light thing to say because if you're a prophet and you speak something and it doesn't come true, they're allowed to kill you. But Paul, in the middle of a horrific storm, says, we're gonna be fine. God has ordained that we make it, we're gonna be fine. But then as the story plays out and the storm keeps getting worse and worse, what happens? The guys on the boat start to freak out and they're ready to jump ship, hop in lifeboats and get out of there. And Paul turns to him and says, what? If you abandon ship, we're all gonna die. Which one? Are we preordained, destined to get there no matter what? Or is it if I don't choose rightly, I'm not gonna make it? And the Bible leaves this seeming contradiction hanging there. And, and the problem is this. We tend to think in such a linear way that we believe, if you're a free will person, then you believe, no, it's, it's a linear, time works in a linear fashion. If I make a decision here, it's going to affect the next thing. And so my decisions affect how things play out down the road. Or we think if you're a fatalist, you, deter, you believe there is a linear set of how things are going to play out and just the next thing's going to happen. It's like chapters on a book or a DVD. We're just going to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and that's how it's going to play out. And, and even if you're in the middle of that, you're still playing percentages. You're still saying it's 60% God's plan and 40% our choices or whatever the case may be. But the Bible does not let us off the hook that easy. The Bible says we are 100% responsible for our choices. And God is 100% in control of every single thing that occurs. And the Bible does not present those as being in conflict with one another. And we would say, well, then the Bible's got to be wrong because that's clearly a conflict. But, but I would say that's not true because we have situations like this in nature. Um, I don't know if there's any science nerds in here. I'm not one, but I read about some stuff. Um, you can Google this. You, you can literally Google this. Light is a contradiction that science cannot figure out. Do you guys know this? Because light behaves in two different ways. Sometimes light behaves as a wave, like waves of light. Sometimes light behaves as a particle. And the problem with that is that particles have mass, waves don't. And so you've got something that over here acts as if it has mass, almost like something tangible. And over here it's acting as if it doesn't and it's the same thing. And science cannot figure this out. It's an absolute contradiction. And we can argue one or the other all we want, but it just 
is. Maybe we're not smart enough to figure it out yet, but it is. And this is the way the scriptures are here. The Bible tells us you should strive with every fiber of your being to choose good, to choose God, to serve God and honor God in your life. But at the same time, it says, but you can be at total peace because God is in control of every single step and every single decision in your life. Both of them are true. The Bible calls us to be absolutely alert to our choices and absolutely at peace knowing God's in control of everything. That's a great thing. Like, do you have that? Like, absolutely alert. What we do matters. We need to choose right. We want righteousness. We want good. We want to do the best we can, but ultimately we can be totally at peace, not freaking out, because we know God's in control of all things. There's a, there's a sermon in here about what our country went through over the last two weeks as well, by the way. That we can desire right and seek righteousness because the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. But when things aren't playing out, when things go bad, we don't have to freak out that suddenly everything's imploding and we've all messed up because God is totally in control. And there's a biblical example for that too. We call it the last half of the book of Genesis. Like the last half of the book of Genesis, if you really step back, and that, that's, oops, sorry, step too far back. Um, if you really step back, that... There's like a full-on, speaking of Jerry Springer, train wreck of situations that just keep happening over and over and over regarding these guys that are our biblical heroes, but they're a mess. You got Jacob, who was 